Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, who does what in the new hybrid work environment? How is a manager and an employee going to keep in touch? How is an employee going to know what they're responsible for, what they are supposed to be doing in this new kind of model? A long list of things to watch out for when you go back to the office. you got to watch out for hidden biases, proximity biases, and location biases, as well as your typical sort of equity kinds of biases that we've been talking about previously. And the real problem for IT at agencies isn't inside the agencies. When we're sitting in meetings this year, talking about uh, fiscal year 2024 to 2029, and we're supposedly trying to decide what to buy when no one has any clue of what IT is going to look like in 2025, let alone 2029, that's also completely uh, broken in terms of, of cycles. It's Tuesday, February 15th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Pilot programs are underway for artificial intelligence at the Defense Department. The Joint Artificial Intelligence Center will manage the programs. The Jake's head of policy and strategy, Greg Allen, tells FedScoop thousands of DOD employees will have a chance to go through the programs. State Department employees at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, Ukraine, are under orders to destroy the IT equipment there. The embassy will move from Kiev to a location 340 miles away. 56 embassy employees arrived at Dulles Airport Sunday carrying the embassy's classified information. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the best bosses in federal IT. We're going to honor the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation around the federal government. You can file your nomination now. The list of finalists debuts March 28th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Biden administration's customer experience executive order is driving collaboration at the tops of federal agencies. IT leaders are working closely with the heads of other business lines to move the needle on the concepts of the EO. Sanjay Sardar is senior vice president for digital transformation and IT modernization at SAIC. He's former chief information officer at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Sanjay, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. I told you before we started recording that uh, on yesterday's program, Simone Zickman and I, the former CIO of Commerce, were talking about this combination of the roles at the top of an agency, the acquisition leader and the human capital leader and the financial management leader and the CIO working together to realize the vision of the customer experience executive order. What's the most important result, do you think, of that collaboration? When those four leaders and their teams and their colleagues are working together, what's the most important result that you think an agency will see coming out of their work toward the CXEO? Welcome, Sanjay. Hey, Francis, thank you, and it's great to be here. Um, so I think when you look at the CX uh, executive order, the primary reason for that is to build or rebuild trust with our, uh, our consistency, our constituency, you know, our citizenship that we're working with. I think most of these integrations that you're talking about of having all these leads working together, what the outcome really is going to be is building up that trust in the agency and the perception that the agency is adding value to a customer and citizen's life. So when you, when you look at this, you know, great CX organizations like Amazon or like, you know, some of the, even Walmart to a degree, they not only look 
to serve a customer's request as their as the request is being made, but also to proactively try and offer value-added services uh, to that customer itself. Um, that's where our federal uh, government should be going, looking at our agent uh, at our constituency's needs and trying to proactively understand what do we have to do to improve that experience when they're working with us. It's not just about speed and efficiency of result. That's one absolutely one avenue, but it's also about quality. It's about how are we servicing veterans who are looking for their checks? How are we servicing um, uh, the as simple as the U.S. Post Office? You know, working towards you know delivering mail on time or things things like that. All of these legacy modernizations have to come in play to then be able to deliver those value-added services. Okay, so the challenge there then from an IT perspective is how do you build the infrastructure underneath that in order to anticipate not just what the customer will want and expect today, but what the customer will want and expect two to five years out? Because one of the things, okay, you cite Amazon. I don't just get recommendations about what I will order today, what other things I could order today. Uh, I get recommendations a week from now based on stuff that I've already made. And it strikes me that that will require not just collaboration among the leaders within one organization, but the presence management agenda refers to the journey mapping concept. Some agencies are using that now, but I, I am not sure that I've seen or heard about agencies that are working together on those journey maps where you have two, three, four, six agencies thinking about somebody who's working in a particular area or living a particular area of one's life. And there are pieces of all of those things together on that journey map. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, uh, the executive order calls for it, but it's all part of that, you know, design thinking, that human-based design thinking where they're looking at that customer experience. Journey mapping, you know, enables them to start understanding how a person interacts uh, with uh, technologies uh, specific legacy, but you know when you look at these systems as you brought it out, you know really where we are going, and these are like some of the big um, strategic efforts that most agencies are looking at, are things like legacy app modernization. Like that's an old, or that's a still a concept that's around, but has to be done for us to really increase the customer experience. When we look at automation, that's a big strategic initiative of how do we integrate and automate different uh, services and systems. So they enable us to work together. Data collection and AI, predictive analytics, uh, hyper cybersecurity type scenarios, all of these lead to what you're talking about is that proactive understanding of not just looking at a customer's history or a, or a person's history, but then proactively saying, what do I need to add value to them? So all of these tech trends have to tie in together to then really add to that, that human that design thinking, that journey mapping to, to meet that customer's needs. Those are absolutely where we, we have to be going. Is there anyone doing it well? I think everybody's on some part of that journey. Like some, there's exploration in automation, there's exploration in AI. And in fact, the automation side of the house, personally, I think is very key to you know, making this all work together. But you can't do it without that legacy app modernization using the cloud compute and cloud storage that, uh, that we already have at our fingertips. To your point, they all have to work together. Why is automation so important, Sanjay? What's the potential that you see there that makes that the number one thing that you're talking about? So from, an, from a standpoint of multiple things, one, automation helps kind of really lay out, when you're designing automation, it helps lay out 
processes that we're using. So inherently, you're, you're taking away repetitive tasks from folks and also looking at the process critically to see what can be improved upon. So as you're going into that automation, you're, you're almost self-improving. Then the second part of that is automation also then is a repeatable, that, that repeatable process means I, as the customer, get the same experience every single time. I have data that I can start collecting on, is it working, is it not working? I can then you know, analyze that data to improve upon my services that are, that are creating. To, you know, needless to say, to, like most organizations and most employees, if you automate those repetitive tasks, they have time to think about the higher value tasks. What else could they be doing? Be really creative in our service management, our service uh, infrastructure. So I think automation is key. To this. It will help tie a lot of the infrastructure together. It will help us analyze and understand business processes that we've used for 40 plus years uh, and really help improve them and then really push us to start thinking about what are the next level services that we really need to add. And it'll help, I imagine, in that analysis of 40 years of business processes to determine if there are business processes that should change or go away, right? Well, without a doubt. That's that improvement cycle. The more we look at it, I mean, we've worked with agencies where they've had these massive 35, 37, you know, step processes of which when you really analyze them, they only really need eight or nine. And they they didn't have the time nor the methodology to analyze before. And now they're starting to look at it. So automation is forcing us to do that. And that's a that's a really good thing. That's where that efficiency, I think, will really come through. All right. The customer experience wrinkle that agencies have started to think about, I would, I would say over the last three to five years, is not just thinking about the citizen as their customer. They're thinking about their employees as customers, too, and the experience that that creates. Is that thought process, is that journey mapping, et cetera, different when you're thinking about internal customers versus external customers, Sanjay? Um, I don't know if the, the process of how to get to uh, customer experience improvements is any different. I think it's still that human design thinking. It is still the journey mapping, as you put it. Um, it's the outcome of what they need that is different. You know, when you look at a world like we are today in tele, you know, um, telework type models, you know, employees have shifted much more to the work-life balance, understanding you know, they, they're dealing with a lot of different things in this pandemic era. Uh, that that will continue to happen. It's not like we're going to stop pandemic and go back to something that used to be. It's now a new world. It's now a hybrid telework world. So the needs of the employee has changed. So we still have to look at all of the things that we are building from an employee experience. You know, when you look at uh, private industries like ours, uh, what we're now looking at as we're recruiting, you know, um, new uh, new employees. While salary is one side of it, but it's also about that whole work-life balance experience, that work experience. How are we going to keep them integrated into a this amorphous organization that we call our company? You know, if they're spread out across the world or potentially across the, the United States, um, that type of experience really builds to where the government has to be as well. Now we're also we've shown that the government can effectively work in a telework model uh, in in almost any department. So how do they now start, you know, uh, entrenching or uh, keeping those customer or keeping those employees very tied into the strategic mission of the organization, to the culture of the organization? Uh, that matters. So designing processes, designing experiences for them, 
becomes very important, which will lead down to you know the uh, federal employment view, uh, federal employment view scores, which are the FEVS, the the way the government rates how an employee's experience is happening. You have to look at those and start saying, okay, what matters? How how is a manager and an employee going to keep in touch? How is an employee going to know what they're responsible for, what they are supposed to be doing in, in this new kind of model? So that's it's absolutely as important to look at the internal customer, and agencies must do that to be successful in keeping that talent that's so mobile nowadays. Sanjay, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on the program today. Hey, Francis, I love it. Thank you very much for inviting me. You can read more about the customer experience EO in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Wednesday's show, next steps for security and connectivity at the Pentagon. Former Deputy CIO at DOD Rob Carey will be here on building on-ramps for new tech we may not even know about yet. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The new post-hybrid work environment guidance from the Office of Personnel Management includes four pillars. Those pillars are promoting a flexible and agile workforce, empowering agency decision-making, strengthening diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the workforce, and considering our communities. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We've been waiting for this guidance for a long time. You, in particular, have been waiting for this guidance for a long time. Now that it's here, what do you see? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Francis. Always love to talk about these topics with you, as you know. I think let's start at the positive, on a positive note, you know, and that is I really like seeing the tips that um, OPM has just recently published segmented by sort of employee responsibility, supervisors and managers, leadership, and then even a shout out to technology. So I really like that what they're focusing on here is, you know, a concept of shared responsibility when it comes to success in this new next world of working. I think some of the challenges are that they point to resources and tools that then they don't define where you could find them. So for instance, tap into free training or subject matter experts across federal agencies or leveraging, you know, the CFO council, CIO council, Chico Council, but it doesn't reference where to go to find those kinds of references or experts. So I think maybe that's the next step. Um, And maybe agencies can start doing uh, a a different kind of job internally as they look to put together real tangible tools that people can use. Yeah, what you're alluding to, though, is the broader discussion in, in government workforce matters, which is what's the relationship between the Chico office at an agency and the office of personnel management and, and what, what's the policy making resource provision and so on that OPM should do and what should the agencies be developing on their own. And the main argument is that the agencies, since they all have different missions, they all have different workforce requirements. Anyway, we can talk about that another time. I just kind of go on a tangent there because I, I think that, that dialogue is so important about what does OPM do versus what do the agencies do? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on. And, you know, I testified at a Senate committee hearing 
last December on the future of federal work. And we spoke about some of the recommendations that I would give to the Oversight and Reform Committee and to OPM and the Safer Federal Workforce. And really that included um, taking a, a better approach at really defining some of those areas more clearly while still giving leverage to the nuances each agency needs. And so for instance, I would recommend starting with if an employee were working remotely all of the day, some of any of the days during the pandemic, then technically that position would be coded as eligible. Now, where you get more defined is how you figure out how frequently that position in normal circumstances should be participating in either telework or a hybrid kind of arrangement or full-time fully remote. And much of that also comes down to preference, Francis. You know, I think a lot of times leadership and supervisors and managers say to themselves, like, goodness, if I allow this policy and I allow employees to choose all of these 61% of my workforce who already we're doing so are going to choose to opt into doing it that way. And quite frankly, that is just not the case. In private industry, the data shows that primarily people want to be in the office one to three days a week. They want to choose when and how they come into work if their position is more portable in that sense. And federal employees have a lot to consider that they might not have already considered, like locality pay bases and RIF implications if they choose to go fully remote. The, all of those things, too, are the elements of what's happening in the private sector, the great resignation concept that we've seen in the private sector that we haven't quite seen in the federal workforce yet. The numbers that I see don't really indicate attrition has changed dramatically post-COVID as compared to pre-COVID. People are kind of the same patterns are still kind of holding as, as they have for years and years and years, Mika. And I wonder what that says about this idea of the future of work because i mean we've been talking about the potential retirement way for 20 years and it's never happened yeah and I think you know data just came out in fact today a report from the eeoc on how the federal government skews older much more so than in the civilian labor market and so when you're taking into consideration preferences of five different generations of workers but 72% of those workers are over the age of 40. Well, you know, those are the ones like you and I who, who watched our parents get up, get dressed and go to work. That was like a normal way that we typically operated. And then throw in the mix, me coming from the military background, you know, it just was unheard of back in the day. Um, so I think we need to take those things into consideration. And as uh, agencies and organizations are looking at data and workforce composition more. It will be interesting to see who is attriting. Is it your newer junior workforce? And I don't even mean young. I mean like newer to the federal government within one to four years. That's a problem, especially if you don't have a more junior workforce to pluck from as you look to middle and senior level managers. God, what I would give to only be over the age of 40 instead of working my way up the other demographic categories, Mika. <laughs> so uh, I, I thank you for the gift of a few extra years that you just gave me. I want to go back to that post-hybrid work environment guidance from OPM. What makes this guidance really usable or really malleable so that an agency can say we can form this to work for our organization? Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? They shout out specifically, especially for leadership and supervisors to weave into the planning process, you know, focusing on delegation and autonomy or implementing people focused management rather than location based management. 
thinking about developing agile culture and hybrid workplaces as you think about your back to office, return to office strategy, communication, even self-management and how leadership can be modeling things for the workforce. Because let me tell you, we've seen in the recent weeks that some of the agencies are already calling back only their senior level leaders. So consider what kinds of messages that might send to the workforce. You might be speaking about, oh, we are dedicated to the future of work. We're going to continue this flexibility. But if I'm requiring all my senior level leaders and I'm a middle level or lower level early careerist looking at, wow, how, what is my career trajectory look like? I need to be physically present in order for me to be competitive, to, to compete for promotion. Then that's sending the wrong message. You got to watch out for hidden biases, proximity biases, and location biases, as well as your typical sort of equity kinds of biases that we've been talking about previously. This is a new world to focus on. So I'm excited about those kinds of focus areas that are woven into the tips and resources. It's great to talk to you as always. Your enthusiasm always comes through and uh, I really appreciate your insight, Mika. Thank you for having me again, Francis. Always a pleasure. You can find a link to the hybrid workplace guidance from OPM in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Pentagon's new software modernization strategy is centered around the cloud. The Deputy Chief Information Officer for Information Enterprise, Daniel Metz, says the strategy will support artificial intelligence and the department's joint all-domain command and control. Nicholas Sheon is Chief Technology Officer at Prevent Breach. He's former Chief Software Officer at the Air Force. Nick, welcome. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming back on the program. What do you see in the software modernization strategy uh, I note that it comes out at about the same time that the Fix Our Computers strategy uh, has kind of uh, made waves across the department and across the technology space. Welcome, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think it's pretty interesting to see uh, finally this document come out. It took a, about a year, I think, for the document to be released. That, that shows you, again, the the bureaucracy nightmare we're facing. I helped, you know, Jason Weiss and the team at DODCAO write it back when I was in the government. Um, and a lot of the, the the push that's being made is to really bring common sense structure around software. And you've seen with this letter that came out a few weeks ago now that um, we are still facing uh, pretty basic challenges when it comes to even something as simple and something that pretty much everybody is taking for granted when it comes to, um, you know, devices and being able to run software and, 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 and connect to your network and connect to your uh, environment without uh, spending an hour waiting for the little loopy loop to finish. You know, it's, it's just um, kind of uh, mind boggling to um, realize that we're not compounding that time wasted in terms of cost. You know, that's the other thing um, we don't do well is to measure uh, those metrics and start uh, putting a, a number, a cost in front of that time wasted, you know, because we just take it uh, for granted. And um, that compounds to medians that, that could be used to uh, fixing those systems. What's the right response to fix our computers, though, Nick? I, I, one of the first people that responded to the actual post on LinkedIn was your former boss, Lauren Nausenberger, who said, yes, I get it. And yes, we're aware that this is a problem and we're working on it. What, what's the next thing that should happen to, to, to get this fixed? Because it, it strikes me any enterprise as big as the Defense Department, it's not going to happen overnight. You talked about the bureaucracy. 
I think everybody that listens to this program is aware of the bureaucracy that exists on any issue inside the Defense Department. Um, so what's reasonable for somebody who's sitting there with a, with a problem, what's reasonable for that person to think this will be fixed when? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the problem, unfortunately, I think the only answer is to actually fix it. We're tired of people talking about it because honestly, it's not really helpful either. Um, you know, uh, when you look at the way we think of the CIOs in the department, they are, they are pretty much policy shops. Uh, in fact, she's not really in control of the execution of the money uh, in IT. So uh, effectively, what you have to look into is uh, what is the uh, program office in charge of uh, uh, deploying these devices. And I can tell you, um, even recently, the, the way we uh, we orchestrate this distribution of devices and buying these devices and releasing them and, and building the cyber stack around it. And, and uh, honestly, also with massive dependency from cyber commands and, and this uh, that, that keeps adding layers after layers and the Air Force adding layers of cybersecurity on top of the DISA layer because they don't agree with each other. And it, it's creating this kind of nightmare of, of uh, you know, uh, uh, cybersecurity tools finding each other on the same device. And uh, some of it could be uh, honestly fixed in minutes uh, with a stroke of a pen, particularly in a partnership between Cyber Command and, and the Air Force and the ODCIO. Um, literally removing some of these cyber capabilities that are redundant uh, and creating these kind of um, uh, bottlenecks in the system uh, would solve pretty good, um, I would say, 50% of the complaints you've seen in the letter. The rest is just, you know, um, devices that are legacy that have to rotate and, and just be migrated to the new uh, devices. The new devices are, are fine. There's no issue there. Um, most of the uh, the work that Lauren has done since she started was to immediately make sure that the new devices we're buying are now uh, you know, best of breed and, and bringing the right uh, technical uh, capabilities. But the, the, the cyber stack on top is really what's creating the problem nowadays. So, You've been critical of the situation in the department regarding software since you left the department. Obviously, your, your departure note was uh, widespread, well covered uh, all over the media. What's your sense of how widespread a problem like Fix Our Computers really is? How bad, okay. how, how many people are encountering what the writer of Fix Our Computers are encounter, encountered? You know, when you look at the the spread of the Fix Your Computer in the Air Force, I would argue it's probably 40% of the devices now uh, still left in a state that needs to be, uh, you know, improved. Um, like I said, there is a cyber piece to that, which could re really be done very rapidly in a matter of, of weeks, I, I would argue, maybe days. Uh, and then the device piece is a little bit harder, right, because we have to rotate the devices and, and that takes time. And uh, honestly, the issue was back in the day, you know, IT was seen as, as, um, as a cost, not as an enabler. And, and so people didn't put any value to um, to enabling people to be more, more efficient in their jobs. And, uh, and and creating um, these bottlenecks in the process of having these five-year cycles or even longer cycles of rotating devices. You could get away with that kind of time frame back in the day, but, uh, you know, look at how often you upgrade your phone, right? I mean, you know, I've, you know even kids nowadays swap phones every year or two years. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, the velocity and the speed of uh, hardware replacement. And, and hardware has to become, you know, kind of commodity 
and uh, we need to accelerate that process. And and that doesn't go very well with the funding cycles we see coming with Congress. That's exactly where I was going to go next, Nick, is the problem that the leaders in the Pentagon are up against is they get their money from the Hill and they only get their money from the Hill when the Hill gives it to them. We're sitting here in the middle of February and don't have a budget uh, an appropriated budget for fiscal 2022, the fiscal year in which we sit, let alone any idea of what's going to happen in 23. And I wonder what the what impediments that creates for all the uh, things that we've been discussing in this conversation so far. It's, it's massive, right? The, the fact that Congress is still incapable of doing their job and, and, and have no impact for not doing their jobs whatsoever uh, honestly, the taxpayer don't realize the impact of it. If they knew that they, they would, they would be on the street right now because we're spending billions of taxpayer money. You're stuck in time, so you're going to be spending money on the wrong things, and you're not going to be able to improve the stuff you were trying to improve. So you're stuck in time, and you still have to spend the money because you have no other choice. Uh, because you want to at least make sure the lights stay on. Uh, but you can't innovate, you can bring new new things, and you're stuck in time. That's just the worst-case scenario. For this to even last a day is mind-boggling, but, but like months now is just inexcusable. And I've, I've, I just don't see how we fix it until until the, the Congress starts doing their job. At the end of the day, you know, we can blame the CIOs as much as we want, but when we're sitting in meetings this year talking about uh, fiscal year 2024 to 2029, and we're supposedly trying to decide what to buy when no one has any clue of what IT is going to look like in 2025, let alone 2029. That's also completely uh, broken in terms of, of cycles. Nick, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks for coming on the program. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the DOD software modernization strategy in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A new Daily Scoop podcast out tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.